Our reading today comes from Mark 10, 32-45. And they were on the road, going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him, and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called to them, called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Amen. So, my name is Richie Sessions. I'm, the, as Nate said, the campus minister at Vanderbilt, the REF campus minister at Vanderbilt. And I just want to say thank you to the, the elders here and to the deacons and the congregation for your faithful support, faithful support to RUF at Vanderbilt. Um, been over 26 years, it's been a ministry, a faithful ministry there. And so I'm very honored to be a part of it. Um, <clears throat> so Nate asked me to preach today. Um, I, I'm a guest preacher. So I, I was a pastor of a church. So I know the guest preacher thing. I get it. So, uh, yeah, I get it. So, but he asked me to preach specifically about bringing the gospel to cultural centers in our world. And I've actually thought a lot about that. I thought a lot about that as a pastor, and now I think a lot about that as a campus minister. But what, is that, what does that mean to bring the gospel to cultural centers? It actually looks like bringing the gospel to leaders. Because leaders are the people who shape culture, shape Franklin, they shape your businesses, they shape the government, they shape medical practice, they shape the legal profession, they shape the home, they shape schools. Leaders and networks of leaders are the people that actually make culture happen. So culture is not just this thing out there that exists out in the, the, the world. It's sort of just this inanimate thing. Culture is sha- it's, a, it's a manifestation of the hearts and minds of leaders. That's what it is. And Jesus was actually really concerned about leaders. In fact, so much of his ministry is spent shaping his 12 disciples and most importantly, his core leaders that will then shape the church, that will then go into the world and shape the culture of the world. And so 
when I was at Independent Presbyterian Church, which is a church in Memphis, we had a lot of leaders. A lot of leaders. It was in East Memphis, kind of like the hub uh, of leadership or power in Memphis to a large degree. And so the leaders of industry, the leaders in education, the leaders um, at, at every level uh, in, in, in the medical profession, legal profession, went to independent. And so the reason, I'm at I, the reason I was at IPC was to help shape leaders. And now at Vanderbilt, the people that are going back into Memphis and going back into Nashville, those are leaders. But, but what is a Christian leader? And that's what this passage is about. What are we looking for for these leaders to go back in and then shape the culture? What is a Christian leader? So we'll look at three things today. First, we'll look at our definition of leadership or the world's definition, man's definition of leadership, our definition of leadership. And then second, Christ's definition of leadership. So we have it in this passage. And then so what? What is an application? What's a takeaway for you today? So culture is shaped by leaders, but what is a Christian leader? Let's look first at man's definition of leadership. And we see that in the disciples asking to be at the right hand and the left hand. Jesus has just said what he's going to do. He's going to Jerusalem. He's going to be betrayed. He's going to be mocked. He's going to be just absolutely crushed. And they immediately ask for places of power. They ask for promotions. And so in it, we get just a, a, what we get here is a slice of, it's not just a first century thing, it's a 21st century thing. What the disciples are showing is what we think of leadership. And so let's walk through this. Here's the first thing that we understand about leadership, man's definition of leadership. And this will sound very familiar. Um, We want positions of power. We want power. James and John belong to Jesus' inner circle. And so maybe they saw this as sort of their last chance uh, to put in a request for sort of future assignments. To sit at the right hand, at the left hand, would have been sort of be like vice king, sort of vice messiah, sort of uh, co-messiahs with Jesus. They would have been, uh, they would have had positions of power. It's sort of like my my brother's 42 years old. He still calls shotgun. You know what shotgun is? When someone calls shotgun, they're, they're, they're asking to sit in the passenger seat and he still does this. Maybe your kids do shotgun. We used to call shotgun. You go outside, shotgun, right? I want the best seat. That's what James and John are doing. They're calling shotgun. They want to get ahead. They want to get their name out there. And for us, it's like shaking the right hands, laughing at the right people's jokes. Our view of leadership is based on power. And at Vanderbilt... It's called FOMO. You're going to learn a new word, some of you. Your kids use it. FOMO, fear of missing out. Vanderbilt runs on fear of missing out, but so does Nashville. The power that I'm going to miss out on something. I actually had a student tell me that that the way he has felt at Vanderbilt for, for the past three years is that he feels like everyone's on their way to finding the answer. Or they've already found it. And they're taking pictures and posting them on Instagram. Everyone has this picture of, I'm going to arrive, I'm on my way to arriving, and you are missing out. And the fear of that missing out is a very powerful thing. 
Mankind's leadership is driven by FOMO. It's driven by an, an ambition that is based on jealousy. You see it in your community. You see it at every single level. And leadership, leadership in the world's eyes is those who get on top, those who get the places of honor. The second thing we see in this definition of leadership, that's like our definition of leadership, man's definition. It's based on superiority. It's based on elitism. James and John see themselves as being more talented, as being more deserving, the sons of thunder, that's what they're called. That's why they're seeking the places on the right and on the left. Give us these seats. These are, this is where we should be. This is, we deserve these seats. Like, Jesus, come on. I mean, we're James and John, right? You can imagine what Peter's doing in the background, right? So much of what I saw at Independent Prez in Memphis and so much of what I see at Vanderbilt is an institutionalized view of ambition and self-confidence that's based on being a snob. It's based on being better than others. You know that this is actually, this, this is the root of racism too. Racism is just a self-righteousness that's based on being superior than another group. Mankind finds confidence and self-esteem in comparison to other people. That's why the, the other disciples are so indignant, indignant in verse 41. They're angry. They're incensed. Why? Not because they think, well, you don't understand Jesus' ministry. It's all about humility. It's all about self. That's not why they're mad. The reason the other disciples are mad is because they think they should have those jobs too. So you wonder, what's, going, what's wrong with my business? What's wrong with the church? What's wrong with my family? It's some manifestation of a desire for power. And it's some manifestation of comparing yourself to someone else. And you have it right here with the disciples. Jesus is letting it all be laid bare right here before us. So there's this desire for power. There is this superiority. The third thing we see is that it's about oppression at the end of the day. Even in the South with a big smile on your face. Listen to what Jesus said in verse 42. So this, this whole thing happens. They're fighting with each other, and Jesus called them to himself. And he said, you know those that are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. In verse, 30, in verse 43, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. We're starting to get at what Jesus, how radically different his view of leadership and power, radically different it is than our assumed view of leadership and power. Jesus is saying there has to be a radically different approach to power. Not that you don't have power, but how you use it. And I found in my experience in the church in over 12 years in ministry of the church, that this is not something that we talk about very much. In fact, 
I've often seen in my own ministry and in the ministry of the churches where I've served and now even at Vanderbilt is that we default as Christian leaders to the world's leadership. Jesus is saying you have to adopt a completely different way of thinking about power and authority. The, power, the world uses power to manipulate. The world uses power to oppress. The world uses power for the deification of the self, which is really at the heart of the sin of Satan. What Jesus Christ is rebuking here is demonic leadership. It's the reason that reality TV is so popular. You know this, but this is why. What we've been talking about is reality TV, the, one of the reasons reality TV is popular um, is because we like to find a whole group of people that we can be better than and then just turn the TV off. Like you can look at someone's train wreck of a life and they have all this money and they're so miserable, but we experience, a, this is a great German word. It's called Schadenfreude. I don't, that's the only German word I know. But listen to what it means. Satisfaction or pleasure felt at someone else's misfortune. That is the heart of this world's, our country's leadership. Jesus says, but it shall not be so with you. Does that, does that sound familiar? I mean, that's actually what's being, that's what's being taught. But even more importantly within our culture, it's not just what's being taught, it's what's being breathed in and lived. It's actually something deeper than something that's coming out just saying, you should be about power, you should be about superiority. It's actually something that's sort of in the water supply. We sort of drink this in. And so Jesus is doing something very different very different leadership, and then this is why I'm at Vanderbilt. Let's look at Jesus' definition of leadership. Because I'm struck at how radically different it is. First thing we have to understand, that Jesus' definition of leadership is that he is God. Philippians 2, verse 5, where Paul is, what Paul is writing to, or he's writing to leaders and 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 disunity and factions that are having, happening in the church in Philippi. Listen to what he says. Have this mind among yourselves, which is in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Or like Hebrews 1, where it said that Jesus is the glory of God. This is Hebrews 1, verse 3. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Everything that's true about God is true about Jesus. To say that he is the exact imprint of his nature, to say in Philippians 2 that he is the, in the form of God, he is saying he is God. That the, that the universe was made through, for, to, everything by Jesus Christ. He made the world. He not only made the world, he upholds the world, world and everything we see. Your very being, flesh and bone, is being held together by Jesus Christ right this very second. He has all authority over every institution. 
He has all authority over this church. He has all authority over Franklin and all the leaders of Franklin. He has all authority over all medicine, all uh, legal profession. All, he has authority over all, all, all religious leaders. He has authority over all these people. He has authority over every university, MTSU and Vanderbilt University. And at every stage of that great bureaucracy known as Vanderbilt, he has authority. He's the king over every single bit of it. And the only reason it continues to exist is because Jesus, by his eternal power, is making it exist and causing it to exist. He's equal with the Father. Do you see what he's saying here? And how ironic and even hilarious, if we can say this, that they're talking about greatness. Greatness in the presence of Jesus. I mean, they're actually, these guys, Jesus made James and John. He saw them knit together in their mother's womb. And they're talking about greatness. And oh, the great patience of Jesus. Jesus is God, but here it is. He's a servant. Y'all wanna know what definition of leadership is? God being a servant. So all of our definitions of leadership, we have to get a big eraser out. And all our assumptions about what it means to have power, we have to delete if we're followers of Jesus. That's why Jesus says in verse, when he's, what he says in verse 43, it shall not be so with you because it, is, it shall not be so with me. If there's, anyone that, if there's anyone that deserved to be in a palace, it's Jesus Christ. But when he was born, this is the kind of servant he is. Jesus was born to poor parents in the middle of nowhere. And they placed him in a manger. You know what a manger is? It's the modern day equivalent of like a dog bowl. I know we have these cute like manger scenes and they're so cute and they're like, wood, the nice woodwork and all that kind of stuff like that. Like this wasn't, to a first century person, this wasn't like a cute thing. It was a filthy, disgusting thing that you kept out in the mud room. And Jesus was placed in this most humble, most, he started his life. And as Donald McLeod, the Scottish theologian said, his whole life is a downward line drawn from the manger to the cross. So look at verse 44 with me. Whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Most theologians, scholars on this passage that think that verse 45 is the summary passage for the gospel of Mark and maybe even the summary passage for the gospel of Jesus Christ altogether. Who is Jesus Christ? He's the son of man. That means he is the king, the one that is high and lifted up, the one and only. And he came to serve. I don't know about you, but I think that this is what strikes right at, this is what strikes right at the very core of the city of man. It's St. Augustine's work. The path of Jesus to be a ransom for many. To humble himself to become a substitute for sinners. It's why he came to the earth. 
Jesus is defining what greatness is since he is the greatest one. He is showing us what it means to be great. And if there is a message to Vanderbilt students, what is greatness? They all want to be great. And in the eyes of the world, they are great. Every year, it's harder and harder and harder. I couldn't have gotten into Vanderbilt. Definitely not now. They are great. But what is Christian greatness? What greatness are we telling our kids? What is our definition of greatness for our children? Jesus is saying that I came into the world to serve. Folks, to miss this is to miss Christianity. At the heart of God is self-sacrificial love. The one who is served right now by armies of angels, right this very minute in heaven, Seeing things that we can't even imagine. He is being served by glorious creatures that we would be tempted to worship. These very creatures that are so glorious are singing to God and to the Lamb. The Lamb? Now, we're, some of you, we're used to this language like the Lamb, right? With a Lamb. Y'all know, y'all seen a Lamb? Is it interesting that he's called a lamb in eternity? Like he's called a lamb when we're all gathered together. He's the lamb who sits on the throne. The, the lamb. John the Baptist, one of the greatest men that ever lived, Jesus said. He said, behold, when he saw Jesus one day, he said, behold the lamb of God. There's nothing cool about a lamb. This is very significant. You will never find a football team or a basketball team or a baseball team called the lambs. What is a lamb? Lamb is weak, gentle. Jesus says the lamb is the lamb that the one that came to not just be born poor and lowly, but the one who came to die. This is what it means for you to lead. To adopt the view of leadership antithetical to Jesus. Elders, this is not to pad your resume. Yeah, it's an honor, but it's an honor to die. B.B. Warfield, the great Princeton theologian who writes on this, who's known for being a very humble man, in fact, who, who his wife was, had, had a certain illness. I'm not even sure what it was, but something happened to her when, she was, when they were on their honeymoon, B.B. Warfield. Um, it, this, he, he was back in the, the 19th century, in the 1800s in Princeton. His, and he took care of her till the day she died, and he was never longer than two hours. He was never longer away from her for two hours. He was, he, was, he was constantly with her, took care of her all the time, and the students saw this. So he experienced this life. Listen to what he says. Are there any whom you, you and I are ashamed to call our brothers? Oh, that the divine ideal of life as service could take possession of our souls. Oh, that we could remember at all times and in all relations that the Son of Man came into this world to serve and by his ministry has glorified all service forever. 
Oh, that we could once for all grasp the meaning of the great fact that self-forgetfulness and self-sacrifice expresses the divine ideals of life. He says, Jesus was led by his love for others into the world to forget himself and the needs of others, to sacrifice self once for all upon the altar of sympathy. Self-sacrifice brought Christ into the world and self-sacrifice will lead us, his followers. He says, wherever men fail, we are there to uplift them. Wherever men succeed, we will be there to rejoice. Self-sacrifice means not just indifference to our times and to our fellows, but an absorption in them. Wherever men suffer, we will be there to comfort. Wherever men strive, we will be there to help. Here's the point. To be a leader, the one who shapes culture, a Christian leader, is someone who sees that life will only come by giving life away. That Jesus Christ found his name by losing it. And so what I want to do at Vanderbilt and what I want to do in my family and the kind of leader that I want to be by God's grace is not a leader who leaves my mark, Richie Sessions, whoever that is, but I want to be the one who by God's grace humbles himself and that through me the kingdom comes. And it's only going to come when I get off the throne. It's only going to come when I wash the feet of the least of these. Now, can you imagine an army of Vanderbilt students going back into politics, going back into industry, going back into business, going, going back into the medical profession, going back into churches that have brilliant minds, that have tons of privilege, that have all this power, and what they do is they use it to serve. That's why I'm a campus minister. So what do we do with this? Here's the first. We become people of the cross. Do you really understand the cross? Have you, have, have you once again, is the cross something that is most precious to you? People of the cross, you know what that means? It means all the things that you boast in. It means that your job or your title, it means that your family name, it means that the place where you live, it means all the things that you find righteousness in, all those things that you like to tell people are the things that you, the letters you like to have behind your name are all those different things that compared to the cross, they're absolute drivel, they're filth. They're not, they're not terrible things, but compared to the cross, you have no righteousness. You only have the righteousness of Jesus that's been given to you. Do you see how liberating this is, people? That you're free from having to be a great You're free from having to be powerful. You're free from having to have your name out there. You're free from FOMO. The freedom from FOMO because you have not missed out on heaven itself. The love of the Father is found in the cross. That becomes your new definition. The most liberated people are the ones who find their freedom in the cross. Here's the second thing. The last thing that Jesus Christ does before he's betrayed and crucified is that he takes on the form of the lowest servant, dresses himself, and he does this to model what it means to be a leader. 
and he washes the feet of the disciples. You know how disgusting that was in the first century? Can you imagine? It was the lowliest job. It was the most entry-level thing you could do. And he washed all their feet. Peter did not like this. You can go back and read John chapter 13. Peter did not like this. Like, you will not wash my feet. Do you know why? It's humiliating to have your feet washed by Jesus. For him to see all the dirt. The smell and the look and the feel. But Jesus knew that in washing our feet, in washing our souls, in knowing us at the core to experience the service of Jesus in his death and his resurrection and the ongoing service of the Holy Spirit in our lives, what that does is it liberates us and cleanses us to then go wash the feet of other people. Most practical takeaway. Who are the people in your life and in your world that Jesus is calling you to wash their feet. What I mean by that is, who are, the, who are the people that seem insignificant, that won't get you anywhere? Who are the people that are most difficult? And as you become person of, a person of the cross, who are the people that you serve? Doctors, it's how you treat your nurses and people in your office. I'm surrounded by doctors. My dad's a doctor, my father-in-law's a doctor, my brother-in-law's a doctor. The most powerful thing you can do is how gentle, how you treat your patients when you're really, really tired or how you treat those who are around you. That is what it means for the kingdom to come in your ministry. For those of you who have power, for those of you, how are you treating the people that are around you that aren't going to get you anywhere? Are all your, react, are all your relationships transactional? It's more than just having a Bible study at your business. That's important. It really means how are you showing that your life is a life of service in places of power? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this opportunity to talk about this very important topic that was obviously important to you, Jesus. And we cannot change ourselves. And so we've heard this. Lord, give us the sweet freedom of your service in our life that we can serve others. In Jesus' name, amen.